For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman, brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is insuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, here we go. It is that time, Midlife Mail Podcast. I am super excited to be with you guys. If you like what you hear, give us that five-star review. Subscribe to the show. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Post about it. Really appreciate it as we get this midlife mail movement growing and growing. 30 days out now from this year's D10 Decathlon. This will be year number three for me taking part in the event. We are a group of executive athletes using our athleticism to help find a cure for pediatric cancer. I could really use your support. Go to the D10.com. Put in my name. Greg Scheinman, make a donation. 100% of your donation goes directly to MD Anderson Children's Cancer Research Hospital. It's a major deal, all right? We are doing everything we possibly can. The D10 is doing all they can in multiple cities throughout the country. It is a super cool event for an unbelievable cause, and let's put our best foot forward again this year. November 3rd, Rice University. If you are in the area in Houston, come out. Cheer us on. It's an awesome, awesome day. All right. On the show today, Stephen Kaufman, an accomplished investor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Stephen has held C-level positions in various financing enterprises for 18 years and has been investing in real estate for 20 years. During that time, he's coordinated over $1 billion in real estate financing for companies like American Express, Hewlett-Packard, and ExxonMobil, and founded ZeusLending.com, which is the leading online provider of real estate financing and the fastest real estate lender in the United States. At Zeus, Stephen manages a team that is responsible for more than $2 billion of retail mortgage loan originations. And according to Inc. Magazine, Zeus is the 37th fastest growing private financial service firm in the United States. He's been interviewed by local and national news organizations like Fox, ABC, CBS, CNN, and Bloomberg on the financial markets and is a contributing author at Entrepreneur.com. He was the Honorary Chairman of the Business Advisory Council of the National Republican Congressional Committee, an Ernest and Young Global Entrepreneur of the Year finalist, and for more than a decade, he served on the Board of Directors for the oldest and largest real estate investment association in the United States, the Rich Club. He served on the Board of Directors for the Houston Mortgage Association and the Anti-Defamation League, and currently sits on the Overseas Appropriations Committee for the Jewish Federation of Houston. Stephen has also been ranked as one of the top 40 most influential mortgage professionals in the United States, and the Houston Business Journal recently ranked him as one of the top CEOs in Houston. He is a graduate with honors from the University of Houston, holds a certified public accountant designation, and has a master's degree in economic development and entrepreneurship from the University of Houston. He also completed the strategic marketing management program at Harvard Business School and is currently a PhD candidate in organizational leadership at the Chicago School. On top of that, he is the founder of the Fanatical Change Foundation, and his philanthropic recognition includes the Houston Astros Hometown Hero, the City of Houston Humanitarian Award, the Lululemon Modern Day Man, and the United States Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award. If that is not enough for you, he is also a four-time world champion powerlifter and 2015 world record holder. He has summited Mount Kilimanjaro, completed the Houston Marathon, ran with the Bulls in Spain, and finished second in the Houston Amateur Arm Wrestling Championship. He is married. He has two kids. He is the consummate midlife male. So let me welcome Stephen Kaufman to the Midlife Male Podcast today. Thank you very much, Stephen. Let's get at it. 
I am here with the man in black, Stephen Kaufman, today on the program. Steve, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Exciting. It's it's good to see you. So you walked in, and we were all both dressed in all black today, mm -hmm. black laces, mm -hmm. black pants. I'm like, okay, let's let's get this thing done. Like we're prepared. So tell me a little bit. Uh, give me a little bit of your background and and your history. Fill us in on that a little bit. You want my physical background, like my sports background, my business background, my life background? Well, all of it because the, the intro, okay, and your bio is, is kind of overwhelming. It's like this guy does so many things um, that you've accomplished. But let's start on the business side, um, where you went to school and kind of what, what you're doing with yourself professionally now. Okay. So the first thing I'll tell you is I am from Brooklyn, New York. Um, but I grew up in Baytown, Texas, and a little bit of, in Houston, Texas, and um in the ninth grade, I, I, uh, I'm the youngest of five siblings. So in the ninth grade, I dropped out of high school to go to work because that's what all my other siblings did. So I didn't finish the ninth grade of high school. And then sometime around 17 years old, I realized that the only way I was going to escape poverty and s escape the path that I was on, that I needed to go to school. So I, in essence, I've been in school ever since, nonstop. Um, I, I'm a CPA. Don't hold that against me. Um, I don't practice, but I am a C licensed CPA. I completed Harvard Business School Strategic Marketing Management Program. I'm a PhD candidate at the Chicago School. I hope to have a PhD by the end of this year, early next year. And um, academics uh, are important to me and important to my children, of course, uh, because of that. Because I knew that's the only thing that was going to break me away from the poverty that my family was living in and had been living in. So professionally, that's my education. Professionally, I, I do really, really do two things. I'm a real estate developer and a real estate lender. Uh, I lend under a company called ZeusLending.com, one of the largest online real estate lenders in the country, and I'm the founder of that company. It's a 15-year-old company, and then I do some what I call mom-and-pop real estate development and investments, which is commercial investments, be $10 million or less, uh, give or take $10 million. So we're buying, either buying existing assets and repurposing them, looking for value-add opportunities, or we're developing them from the ground up. And those are the two things that I do mainly. How did you choose those things? How did you determine kind of, again, from, from where you came from and the education that you went back to get, where you were going to focus your time and, and your energy? I didn't really, I didn't choose lending, real estate lending. As a, an accountant during the day, working in public accounting during the day while I was finishing my degree at night, this was in the mid to late 90s as mortgage companies were, were becoming prolific thanks to Bill Clinton. And, you know, our firm was getting a lot of mortgage companies as clients and they needed someone to go help them and I became the chosen one for that. I didn't choose that, I was told where to go. And I liked uh, the business, I understood it, and eventually I got hired away outside of the firm and eventually I decided to start my own. And so I really didn't choose it, it, it in essence it really did cho choose me. And it's simple, it, it, fundamentally it's you're helping people um, with a major either investment or for some people, their largest asset or largest liability, depending on which perspective you take. But without a doubt, it's their largest monthly expense or their month. Their, one of the most significant aspects of their life is where they live. And I'm able to help them. One of my main firms is able to help them with that, so it's pretty meaningful work. You mentioned that it chose you. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that you had a position, you went to another position, then ultimately decided that you were going to start your own thing. When did you decide in there that you wanted to go out on your own, that you had that courage to take that risk and take that leap because you had the cushion of a job, you had education, you had a job now, and you said from, from the poverty of where you came from to going out on your own, that, that's, a big, that's a big decision. Yeah, well, I think, no question, I le there was a, a sense of uncertainty that I would have to give up, and as, an, as a, I'm, I'm fairly risk adverse, so as a you know traditional CPA thinking pro thought process, I don't want any more risk than I than I than I than I need. But I don't know anyone who doesn't want to ultimately be their own boss on some level. So I think everyone is born with that, or I could be wrong, but I think everyone's born with that. I think everyone wants that, wants to be their own boss, wants to control their own destiny, and I think for me, early on, I was looking for the right opportunity to do that, and I knew that the sooner I did it. Um, the greater chance I had of being successful, the sooner I acted. The later in life, obviously, it's not impossible. In fact, great successes have happened in there. We, I, I'm pretty sure this is still the decade. The men who are 55 to 65, that's their biggest earning decade. So there's no question you can do it when you're older. But I think the sooner you do it, the, the more advantages you have. And mm -hmm. So I was just waiting for the opportunity. 
do you think, and I, I've found this lately in a, in a few meetings, because I go see all different types of companies and all different types of people, uh, and, and with the program being kind of themed around the notion of, of the midlife male, there are a lot of guys that are in that demographic, in their 40s right now, that are still in jobs or still in positions, wishing they were somewhere, wishing they were somewhere else. And I've always been fascinated and interested in that process of why and how some people do take that leap and go do it, and others, it's never the right time, mm -hmm. or they've gotten themselves into a situation or a lifestyle or whatever it is, and it never seems to happen, that idea to execution, as if they want to be their own boss, but they just never end up getting there. Yeah, I, I think, first of all, I think that the chances of success are pretty small, and I, you know, I have a good friend who has always dreamed about being out on, on his own, and I, you know, he makes a very good salary and has really good benefits and great flexibility. You know, he's make, you know, making, you know, well over six figures. I don't know why he would ever want to be as. I mean, he is living. He gets to go home every day at five o'clock, and occasionally when the company needs him more, he gives the company more of what they need. But he has a pretty sweet gig. I don't know why he would want to risk that for the uncertainty of just a little bit more. What seems to be the grass is greener. I have a little bit more control, and I have this mm -hmm. opportunity for upside. From a quality of life standpoint, at some point, I don't think it, the economics, even the economics, makes sense. You're risking a lot for the stability that you have. That isn't just surviving. You're really thriving in this secure environment. Why would you ever give that up? Now it sounds great. Sounds sexy to go do this on your own, or start this new thing that you want, or you, you know, take that idea. But there are just as many people I think who. You, we don't hear about them who are living this great corporate life, who have great stability in their world, make a great income, have a lot of flexibility, and they don't have any of the. When they go home at five o'clock, you know they're wondering where they're going to eat for dinner. It's it's a great point, especially as the word entrepreneur has become such a buzzword that that it's a hip thing to do, and everybody wants to do it. But as you said, the flip side is the risk, the sleepless yeah. nights, the yeah. instability of income and everything else. Yeah, there's this perceived payoff. I guess it also depends on what you choose to be an entrepreneur in. Some things have unlimited potential, and other things are going to have a ceiling on them, whether they're yours or not. But the flip side to that hip, cool, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur and go out on their own, as you mentioned, are the quality of life and, and stability, and you can make a very good living and mm -hmm. turn it off in there. Have you wavered on that at all, even yourself, over time? Uh you know, I think it, it's a. I'll I'll answer that indirectly. That we've been told a lot in modern uh, uh, society and culture to follow our passion, find our passion, and that is a little tricky because a lot of people, including me, struggle with what is that passion that I'm following, or what is that purpose? Find your purpose. Find a job that you're passionate about. You'll never work. Or find something. Mm -hmm. I'm passionate about a lot of things, but they will, would not pay uh, pay pay my bills. <laughs> Um, and, um, you know, I, finding your purpose and finding your passion, those are kind of, I think, bag, a bag of goods that people have been sold that may not be what they're meant to be inside of the business world. And I think a lot of people who are in working the nine to five, like you're talking about, or working in corporate America, let's say, even if you are working a lot for your company, but you have the stability of that company under, behind you, I think what, a lot of times what they're looking for is their purpose or their passion that they're trying, they think the way they're going to express it is being an entrepreneur. But they're collapsing two different things that don't belong on top of each other. There are plenty of entrepreneurs that their business is not their passion or they it, the passion, the flame burns out or they think it's their purpose and it has run its purpose but it's not their purpose anymore. I think there are, we have friends who live in corporate America who are trying to collapse finding their purpose in being an entrepreneur and I don't think they're the same thing. And I think that's why a lot of people are looking at entrepreneurship as their way out um, or their answer, let's say. But I, I don't think that's it. I think they're not the same thing and people need to, to search for them and search for their uh, – being an entrepreneur is a risk take. It's risk. Mm -hmm. I don't it's, – it's a monetary decision and that's what it should be. And if you're better off in corporate America making the same amount of money or making maybe a little bit less money than you were on the upside, I don't see why someone would take the gamble. I don't think I would take the gamble today. To answer your question, long a long walk we got there. I would not take the gamble if I was making, you know, three hundred and fifty, five hundred k a year. I wouldn't risk that. I could still be an investor and still work for somebody, mm -hmm. for the risk of 
being an entrepreneur and all everything that comes along with it to run a large organization, I don't think it's worth it. Um, no, I think, and I like the long walk around. We were chatting before we even kind of started recording about selling businesses. Um, and did you haven't really sold a business, or you sold a business, and you didn't have sold a few small businesses also. And I'm kind of the perfect example of having gotten involved with some smaller businesses that maybe had some windows of opportunity, but also I'm here in a professional services built business right now, building something and doing something. And that decision is always you know, passion and clients and prospects and how you merge the two and do you merge merge the two. And now that's my, my long walk back around to asking you about the decision or the opportunities to maybe sell, mm-hmm. take some chips off the table, mm-hmm. then be able to maybe follow a passion or still do what you're doing right now, but do it once you have sold, like we always said, if we happen to sell the firm, we can go right back to doing exactly what we're doing today. Yeah. Starting tomorrow, only you have reduced your risk. You've taken some chips off the table. You've been rewarded. And, and I like these kind of evaluations of, of what time also and how people evaluate when the time might be right you know, for them. I love this conversation. I do something called a CEO review once a year. And the CEO review is me as CEO of my companies. I'm looking at them to decide, should I try to um, grow a company, exit a company, and what type of exit is that? That just means dissolving it, doesn't mean selling it. What what are the consequences of doing both? And one of the things that I found is, and I've I've shared this with some other friends, they think selling the company is going to be this big payout, this big multiplier, until they really start getting to the bottom line, what would they earn? And then you figure if you know if you're a midlife male, you're in your 40s, the money that you'd get for the cash today to take the chips off the table, it may not be more than you'd be making over the next decade. So do you want to? I think the 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 cost benefit is: do I take the money right now and do something else with it? You're going to probably still want to go to work tomorrow or next week or after the you know the boredom sets in, it's, especially if you're an achiever and you're an A type. You're going to want to do something. So you're gonna go. You're gonna take that cash off the table and then go do something. Well, is that cash enough to you just not stay in the course that you're on now? I, I think most people, when they actually do, uh, you know, uh, tie the math together and dot their T's uh, and cross their eyes, if you will. Just kidding. Uh, dot their eyes and cross their T's. Just kidding. Um, I think when they do that, they re- they realize that actually they wouldn't make that much more money than if they just stayed the course for a few years. And you know, the next five years, they're going to make the same amount of money, and they maintain the same lifestyle. Don't get me wrong; I'm not downplaying being an entrepreneur. Uh, I was more talking compared to being a, someone in corporate America. I think mm-hmm. entrepreneurship has many advantages. One of which is in quality of life when you are able to control your schedule versus not. If you're in a job where you can control your schedule and make money and make a difference for people, and you have security, I think that's an amazing place to be in. I think if you're doing sales for a large organization, even if you can control your schedule, there's not a lot of certainty behind that. And that becomes, you know, then it's, okay, well, do I stay or do I go? Or do I need this team to help me build what I'm building? Short answer, again, is I think that when you do the math to exiting or taking the chips off the table, I think what most people end up finding is that they'd be better off staying and mm-hmm. leaving chips in the, in, on the, it's not like, a, it's not like betting, it's not winning or losing. We, we're, we're making the analogy of business like a, like a sports game, like you win or lose. That isn't it. You're, you're, more in, a, you're in a dance with uh, your clients or customers. You're in a dance with your employees. It's not a win or lose scenario. Do you stay in the dance? And I think the answer is I mean, most people, when they do the analysis, they realize they're better off staying in the dance versus going to the sideline. Yeah, and I think you make a good point about analyzing and evaluating. One, should you or should you not? But also... Uh, in terms of how you choose or how you find what it is that you want to do. And, and now we're back to combining a little bit of, of work and life and combining your passion with maybe what your profession is. And is it enough to, you know, can you control your schedule? Can you control your earnings? And I've, I've always said that no matter what you do, we're all in sales to a certain extent. Yeah. You got you to gotta gotta sell yourself enough to get the job. You still got to keep selling yourself enough to keep the job. There's always competition out there. But, you know, I hear you in, this, in the sales world, where if you've got to keep grinding and keep selling, keep selling, obviously that's that's hard, you know, year year after year. And when you look at different industries and, and different places, I've talked. Okay, well, you get back into the pros and cons. Can you control your schedule? 
you sell something? Is there residual income to that? Or are you starting back at zero every year? Or what are the expectations you know, within that company? So do you have freedom or do you not you know, really have freedom? Um, and this stuff we could go around. Yeah, around. I mean, if you have a book, of, if you're an insurance, if you have a book of business that you that's yours and you have um, a residual income, that's a different, you're basically establishing a business within a business. That's mm -hmm. a different model than a lot of salespeople um, I think a lot of technology salespeople that I know, you know, if they don't work next month, whatever they did last year, that's just last year. Yeah, they just move the needle and tell you, here's your goal for next year. Yes, go, go, out, go get it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so they're not, they're basically a widget or a cog in that wheel. And if they stop, you know, the, the machine just runs over them. Yep. And there's, they got to start all, all over again. That's a little bit different. I think, you know, and I, I case by case, right? Every, everything's a little bit more complicated. I will say one more thing about purpose and passion. That if 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 people think finding your passion, you get to do it every day. If you ha if you have to do it, meaning you have when you wake up, you you have to go do that. Soon, your passion will die for that. It's so a lot of times we're again. I think people in present company included, we collapse our passion on our work. You're you're you could be passionate about your work, but if you're forced every day to do something to make a living. And you're dealing with the stresses and the, the, the pressures of doing that, quickly the passion dies and people mm -hmm. will get burnt out on whatever that passion used to be. People do it in relationships. People do it in business all, all the time. I think part of it being your passion is that you don't have to do it. You're choosing to do it. And I think living a good, you know, what I call work-life blend, not work-life mm -hmm. balance, uh, I don't think in modern society you can have a balance. I think you need a blend and know when, uh, know when you know, sometimes your work or your, your, your business needs you more and sometimes your family needs you more, but sometimes you're, you need more of your passion. And I think if you could have a good work-life blend and pay a little bit more attention to your passions when you need to, to refuel yourself a little bit more. We talk about family, refueling mm -hmm. yourself with your family, refueling yourself um, uh, with your business when you need to. I love the, there's a, I think there's a TED talk about a, a guy who talks about juggling ball these balls, and but one of them is glass, and you know your family. You can mm -hmm. you can you can drop any of these balls. Your work, your passions. The one you can't drop is your family. That's the mm -hmm. glass. Don't drop that one. But juggle all these balls and drop them when you need to. I think it's a great metaphor. I got I got to look on that one, and I also like the word blend. I mean, this is this is a topic that comes up every time we do a show, and that's that work life balance. Um, great guy on a couple of weeks ago. Um, Air Force pilot, cancer survivor, motivational speaker, and he chooses the word harmony. You know? Okay, love that and, word. And now you're going with the word, with the word blend. But what we're centering this around is essentially this, the same, the same thing. You know, you've got all of these, and and you wrote about this also. I believe it was the four F's. Mm -hmm. okay? Define the four F's. So, uh, four F's: uh, family, fitness. Finances, philanthropy. The fourth F's a little bit of a joke. Uh, thank you for for, for laughing. Um, you know, I think you want to. You're you're looking for a blend of those four areas in your life. Those are the the blend that you're that we're talking about. Family, you know, number one. Um, whatever that looks like for you. Number two, fitness. That's not the next. The next year, not in any particular order, but family number one. Then let's just say finances number two. You know, what is your business and how are you how are you maintaining? You know, you you don't you don't. Um, you don't need to work to live, for sure. But it costs money to live. So if you want to have a life, you're really going to have to do some sort of work and, and provide some sort of value somewhere for some sort of gain. So family one, finances number two, fitness number three. And when I say fitness, I also incorporate that really to mind, body, and spirit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are you doing emotionally for yourself, spiritually for yourself, religiously? If that's your, if that's important to you, I, I. I Put all that under fitness, basically under the temple or yourself. What are you doing for yourself to take care of yourself? And then lastly, philanthropy, which is a little bit, could be a blend of, of mind, body, spirit as well. But what are you doing to, to give give back and pay it forward or sending the elevator back down if you've already made it to some level of success? What are you doing in that area? Those are the four areas, and I'm looking always to blend those and, and making commitments in those four areas. And again, the reason why I, I love the word balance, I think it's fantastic. I love balance sheets. I love the, the, uh, the art of balancing physically. I think it's fantastic to work on that. But I, I know that it's, it is difficult to have balance in those four areas. Mm -hmm. I, I think that can be very challenging. And I don't think you can have balance in all of those areas all of the time. You know, yeah. I think at some point, daily, weekly, quarterly, whatever it may be, something's a little out of whack you know, in there. Either businesses taking 
kind of taken, taken over, you've got things that are going on, so maybe family time suffers a little bit, or you can't get to the gym or train maybe the way you want to, or maybe you'd planned on meditating all the time and, and that's not happening, but you know, trying to look at it over, over a period of time. I think you're right. Not putting much it. pressure on every day saying, okay, I've got to do these 10 things every day. Like, that's a lot of pressure. Like, I, so I've become very busy. You know, it was busy instead of productive yeah. in there too. So now you're checking checking boxes uh, in there too. Let's talk a little bit more about about family. Because okay. another thing that you mentioned off offline before we started was the work weekends, and you shift into family mm-hmm. mode. Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy bet- behind kind of disconnecting, going into family mode, and what that really means to you. So it's not this. My work-life blend is a little bit different, and I, I'll say it this way. I just want to explain how it works, and I think you'll understand. Monday through Thursday, four days of the seven days of the week, three of those days I work through dinner, and if I have any networking or any other meetings to go to, I go to those. Uh, and there's some freedom in my home schedule for that. My wife and I agree that's time where I, if there's going to be a meeting, I try to use one of those three days to do that. But one of those four, I'm going to be home. So one of the four days of the week, I'm home. The other three, I'm doing whatever I need to do for my business. If there's an evening meeting or networking event or opportunity to meet with a client after after work, so forth. Or even work out, if that's what is important. But Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, those are totally dedicated to family at about 5 o'clock. And I'm a very, very, very passionate believer in quality over quantity. I think I have a lot of friends who spend a lot of time with their children, but they're not with their children when they're with them. They're just present with them. I'm present with my children. So I'm not working on my cell phone. I'm not, you know, on social media. I'm not, uh, I'm with them and I'm paying attention to them. And um, we're talking and we're growing with each other and, and, and sharing things. And so from Friday, basically at four, four to five o'clock, I'm with my children all the way through Sunday evening and one other day during the week. So three of the days during the week, you could say that my kids don't see me in the evening. And, um, and this took a long time to perfect, to how to make, you know, achieve the things that are important to me, which are, you know, I want to be able to provide for my family. That's one of my jobs. I consider one of my jobs to provide for them. But I also want to fulfill some of my passion, which is a lot of sports and activities and even uh, non-sport interest. Uh, <clears throat> so I disconnect basically. I don't turn off my phone. So I don't, I, I don't turn off my phone or disconnect from the world. I just... I don't schedule anything if I can avoid it. And if I am scheduling something, I want it to involve my kids as much as possible. And most importantly, it looks like spending time with my children, not just being where they are in the same room. Doing something with them, playing games with them, walking with them. I, we walk to breakfast almost every weekend wherever we're going. And those walks, we, we play a gratitude game on all, all those walks. What are they, we're looking, as an example, we look for, we try not to repeat anything anyone else said for being, they're grateful for in the entire walk. We can walk for 45 minutes hmm. to, to, and, to and fro. And the job is you lose if you have to repeat something someone else said. And uh, getting my kids very uh, grateful for what uh, the world's provided them. And uh, because I'm sure another topic that you you either have dealt with or are going to deal with today is how parents who are successful or athletic or um, uh, bit, or both how are they transferring that to their children so they mm-hmm. have the drive. I was going to ask you also how the manner in which you're raising your kids different from how you grew up. Oh yes, and how so? My parents were pretty distant. Uh, it was, uh, my parents were very loose in, in their child rearing. I mean, I was able to drop that out of high school and then in the ninth grade. So, uh, my, that was not seen as anything foreign in my house. So totally different, uh, more, much bigger focus on academics, total focus on academics and total focus on, um, doing, uh, paying now so they can play later and delayed gratification, understanding a little bit more about money. And I'm very interested in how other parents, especially with older children, are developing responsibility in their children, their teenage children, their college-age children. How, how do they develop these skills where my children are, I didn't, I grew up without electricity about 80% of my life. So I didn't have a telephone. I didn't have electricity. It was easy for me to understand money. My children, they don't worry about money, so how do I get them to respect it and to appreciate it and to understand it in a way that is not fear-driven the way it was for me? I'm still driven by that fear, actually. I don't want them to grow up that way. And so I'm always interested in other parents' ideas 
I'll give, I have one. It's a tip. Mm -hmm. uh, the best idea that's ever worked, that, that has worked so far that I really think gives my children a great appreciation for money is we, we love the matching concept in our house. So we, anything my children want, if we're at the mall or at a store or at a fair, anywhere, if they want it, they can have anything they want. They just have to pay for half of it. And it, I can tell you the light goes off, like a literally light bulb above their head, when anything that my children want, they can have. As long as they're willing to pay for half of it, they almost want nothing. So if we're at a store and one of my, my daughter wants a new, uh, uh, a new squishy, if you're a parent and you, know, you, you have a young, young daughter, you know what a squishy is. If she wants one for $11 or $12, once I tell her, that's fine, go get it. Just give me your $6. Do you have it with you? No. Well, can, you, can I pay you? I can always tell them they can pay me when they get home. And they never want it. Why? Because then they start realizing they only have $20 saved up from whatever they've done. They don't want to part with their $6 uh, for this little tour that they already have 10 of. And um, so that has been an amazing concept to teach my children about money. I'm going to steal that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> starting, starting tonight. Yeah. I'm going to steal because it comes up all the time. Yeah, um, they can have whatever they want. Well, look, and it's, it's also it's so easy at this point too. It's easy to ask. It's easy yeah. to have things given to you. Yeah. It's easy to order stuff online. It's yeah. easy to click a button on the video game thing. We do the same thing with Amazon. All of a sudden it shows up in my inbox that says thank you for your purchase. Yeah. You know, we do the same thing with Amazon. We do the same thing when they get birthday cards from Amazon. Uh, we do the same thing with if they want it, they can have it. They just have to pay mm -hmm. for half. It's I mean, it's all, it's an interesting concept. I mean, it affects credit, it affects everything and instant gratification in there that you know, there was some article that we were passing around at home about the notion of utilizing cash versus credit or anything else where you can now store your cards, click a button, and nothing feels like you're buying anything and things just come in yeah. until you get the gift. But if you're actually dealing with cash, like real money all the time, and you have to go hand it to somebody else, what does that do, similar to what you're talking about, to your desire to actually purchase that? Would you really do it? Would you buy as much food even in the grocery store? You know, would you order anything online the same way? I don't have my wallet want? with, mm -hmm. I don't have my wallet with me. Uh, I left it in in, uh, in my in my bag, but we still, as a policy, deal in cash in our house when we're for expenses. So if I opened my wallet, you'd see a little cash in there, because we we want to use cash when we're purchasing something for this exact reason that we, they can you can see the money dwindling. My children need to see the money money dwindling. If not, it doesn't occur to them as real. Mm -hmm. If they have an Amazon gift card to them, it's just a an account that is on their they have credit for. Oh, look, they're like the machine. The machine just spits out money. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. That's what, that's what it does. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't really tell you, you know, how it's moving, mm. how, it's, how it's depleting your account all the time. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I, I will absolutely. Uh, I'll steal that. They're going to thank you, by the uh, way. I'm sure. No, they, well now they can have anything they want. There, there I you always go. tell them you can buy anything you want. You don't even have to ask me. Just pay me half. Yep. Physically and athletically. You've done some pretty remarkable things. Not too many. Uh, you've done you've done a few. So, and you seem to also go after a task, accomplish a task, and then even move on to to the next thing. How did you get into powerlifting? Let's start with powerlifting. Okay. So when I was in college at the University of Houston, they had a their first. They have an entire program now, but. When I went there as an, for my accounting degree, they had they were starting they were looking for interest in a powerlifting program, and I was grad I graduated or was graduating, and they were having a midday competition, and I went and competed and came in first place in bench press, and I thought it was fun and exciting, and I put that on the shelf for about ten years because I was focusing on other things, life and children and career and so forth, and then in my early thirties, I decided I wanted I had children now. I decided I wanted to take on doing something physical, other than occasionally working out at the gym. You're the normal, you know, mass per, mass yep. gym. Can I stop you for one second on there? Not you're taking this back up in your thirties. Yep. We see a lot of guys. That's what I'm, they're out of shape. They're letting themselves go. That was me. Back, mm -hmm. What was it that got you back into the mindset of I need to do something again, physical like okay. this? Okay. The, okay, the really detailed story was I have Crohn's disease and I had a resection, which is a surgery where they cut off a piece of your small intestines. I was in the hospital and I thought, man, this was, you know, life is happening. You know, this, this is a really serious situation I'm dealing with. And um, the, the, the full story is I told myself when I get here, I'm going to eat shellfish because I wasn't eating shellfish for religious reasons. I'm going to buy a Bentley and I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to either climb Mount Kilimanjaro or I'm going to start powerlifting because these are two things I really wanted to do, but I was, per, I was too busy with work to ever take them on and family. 
I'm going to make the time to do one of these two things or both. So I started, I ate shellfish in the hospital before I left. I went out and got a, a Bentley and uh, I didn't own it very long. I sold it in six months, but I did have one for six months and I decided to find a powerlifting gym. And I was go coincidentally Googling uh, or YouTubing videos of powerlifting, just looking for guys who were strong, getting some motivation while I was still in the hospital actually. And I found the strongest bench presser in the, uh, in the world. I was watching some videos and I went to his website and realized that his phone number was 832, which for people who are turning, tuning in, that's a, a Houston area code. I thought, what are the, the chances? I called him and said, would, or, do you any, do any personal training? Would you train me? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a newbie. I have no experience. And he said, maybe I have to meet you. I met him and the rest is history. That's awesome. Um, and um, I trained with him, won a world championship my first year. Um, I bench pressed in my opening, where, where, when he met me, I bench pressed 245. And I benched 407 that year to win a world championship in my weight class. Um, what was the weight class? Uh, that was 181. Okay, so it's for a frame of reference here, how tall are you? I'm 5'10". Okay, so 5'10", 181, and 400-pound bench press. That, we, we just put that in context. Okay, okay? good, yeah. <laughs> that was my first weight. I gained. I went up in weight class later to bench press more weight. And I won four world championships with him. And in 2015, I set the world record in bench press. I don't know if it's still there, and I don't ever look because then I can't say I, I still have a world record. <laughs> so if you're listening, do not email me or text me or tell me. I don't want to know. I'm not interested. Fair, fair enough. Okay, so you accomplished that. Mm -hmm. Renowned champion weightlifter. You get yourself up Kilimanjaro too? I did. We did Kilimanjaro in the middle of that time. I did that, I think, 2014. Great hike. Uh, recommend it to a lot of people. I think it's fantastic. We're definitely... You know, seven days of pure excitement and uh, tough work. You know, highest point in Africa. I recommend it. I think it. Uh, I think a lot of people should do it. Do you think people need kind of a tipping point or a traumatic event or something to kind of shift or or make make that change? What I do don't think they need that. I think that there are triggering events that happen for people. I have a friend. He was overweight college he just decided one day i don't want to live like this anymore and nothing happened yep i mean i think that i tend to get and, and, and know people and even a bunch that have come on that they have had trigger events pivotal events in their life that have changed the course of how they function and how they operate and things that they've done but i agree with you I don't think you need that. I have a lot of I don't friends think who that that's a though. crutch either to say, okay, we've turned this negative into a positive and that's it. I'd like to believe, and I feel, that if you just wake up one day and you're not feeling that well and you're not as healthy as you want to be or your life's out of whack a little bit, then it could be a podcast, it could be a radio show, yeah, it could be whatever way direction the wind is blowing. Just make the fucking change. Like you yeah. wake up and you decide. No, I agree. Let me go do that. I agree totally. My, my brother, he uh, he was he was a smoker from his teens on. I think you know it, at uh, in his mid forties, he was bending down to tie his shoe. One day, one morning, realized he was out of breath and said, "I'm not going to smoke anymore." You, is that a triggering event or a pivotal event? I don't know. He was tying his shoe. He just said, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't think no, nothing big, nothing dramatic happened. He didn't have a heart attack, nothing. He just said, I just, I'm not going to smoke anymore. And he quit cold turkey and has been taking on a lot of athletic challenges and uh, getting, in, getting himself healthy. Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I think you're right. And I, I think that people, you could wake up or hear a podcast and decide, I'm going to do X and go do it. I, I think the difference is the people that you're describing have gone out and done it and they pursued it. It's not easy and it takes a long time. Some people get to a, to a fish like water. Some people like me, it just takes time and I, mm -hmm. it just, you, you, you stay with it. You religious person, spiritual person? Very, both? very spiritual. I'm religious from a tradition standpoint. Um, organized religion, I, I have mixed feelings about. Um, my children go to a religious school. Um, but spiritually, um, yes, I, I, think, um, I think being connected in whatever fashion I can be with the universe and with myself is really, really mm. critical. Were you raised in a religious home? Or no. 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 Mm. I, I wasn't either. But I don't, we probably don't look and act exactly like the typical nice, nice Jewish boy thing. No. So I guess is where, is where I'm going no, no, no. We with this too. I think we both, we are definitely atypical for the average 
Jewish. And we can walk around the school and and, and function and look a little little different. And I look, I married a nice Catholic girl from Bel Air, Texas. Also, um, got my series of tattoos. Everything else. You, where did I mean, did you think about that kind of stuff? Are you being? Is it more just? you being you and the authenticity of it and kind of where you fit kind of identity-wise? So it, it's interesting. It doesn't occur to me like I thought about it a certain way or not. I have been asked this similar question based on my wife and my tattoos and just the way I don't look like. Uh, I, look, I, I, I feel like I look Russian. I may not, but, but all four <laughs> of my grandparents are Russian. So and my mom was uh, my, uh, my, uh, my family. We weren't raised Russian. We were born in a trailer park in Baytown, um, and we were we knew we were Jewish, but we didn't tell anybody outside of our trailer that we were Jewish because that was dangerous. Um, and we just didn't grow up very religious. My parents grew up opportunistic. They mm-hmm. went to synagogues and churches to get free food whenever they could. But um, we, I, it, it has never occurred to me uh, that I would be going against the grain by getting a tattoo or marrying a, or two or three or marrying a, a woman that wasn't Jewish or it didn't occur to me like that. It more occurred to me that um, I'm on my own and whatever works for me and my family best is what I'm going to do. And if I'm not, my grandfather always said, if you're, whatever you're doing, whatever, do whatever you can to make yourself happy as long as you're not hurting anyone. And so I've, I've pretty much have tr- tried my best to live that mantra make myself happy, get myself happy, be happy, don't hurt anyone. It's really, it's really good advice. Um, I did think about it, I guess, for, okay. for a while. Um, you feel guilty because you're Jewish? Not necessarily, <laughs> more but, you know, grew up in kind of a very incestuous Jewish town, affluent Jewish town, the bigger bar mitzvahs, everybody, everyone kind of looked the same, act the same. And in all due respect, they're all they're all still doing. Like they're all yeah. still there. Yeah, everyone married one another. They're in the same towns, at the same places, you know, eating at the same places, partying at the same places, golfing at the same places, and I had to think. I had to think a lot about it. Whether I was going to stay, you know, in there, and could I even stay and be true, you know, to myself, or was I going to move on and go somewhere else? And if I wanted to get tattooed, great. And if I wanted to you know, marry this woman, I'm gonna gonna do yeah. that. You know, I, so I did think about it for a while, and for a while I think I was kind of on. Well, you, you you grew up in that, so you were leaving something. Yep. I didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. I always saw it from the outside, so I already felt like an outsider. Okay. You see, had a lot of bravery to. Leave I had to that. leave. I had to leave. I felt I felt more like an outsider probably in the last twenty years. I mean, I was in it. I was yeah. in it. Stepping out of it was really freeing. Um, but even here now, not having grown up here, um, it was even a big concern of mine going, placing the kids even in the school where we have our kids now because you know, I was more wrestling with, is this even similar to how I was raised or how the community was and do I even want to go feel like even I'm leaning in that, in that direction? I don't know how many of your listeners will relate to this, how many of them are, are Jewish, but there's definitely a certain echelon of pedigree in, I think, every major city uh, and probably even worse in small cities. So there's, I guess because I was never in that, it, I worry about it, but I don't worry about it as much. You, that's, you, you must have, that's a lot of bravery or courage or both because you were in it, you knew what it was, you knew you were leaving it, and you know what it looks like even here. You must have a better eye for it than here. Maybe, but it also goes back to what, you, what we talked about. Do you need a pivotal life-changing event in order to set you on, on, on a course? And while I don't think you do, you know, I, I had one with my father passing away and saying, okay, well now maybe I have the freedom. I, I can... I can do whatever I want to, you know? 47 seems like a pretty young age to be, to be done, you know, overall. And you want to be happy, so go do what you, go do what you want to do, overall. Um, I don't think you necessarily need, I didn't need that to happen, maybe, to, to do it, and also we were close enough where I feel like I could have done anything I wanted anyway and, and been supportive. But it's interesting in my 40s now looking back at it and where and where I am now and then seeing similarities in a different city in a different state and being conscious of all that. I think the pedigree exists in every city in mm-hmm. it within within this community. I um, I've just accepted I'm not the way I was raised I'm not like them. Mm-hmm. And I still even maybe I'm saying it I'm just not like them. My wife 
who's half black and half Indian is more like them than I am. I don't buy into it at all. It's funny you say that. I always joke with my <laughs> wife about that too. I always tell her that she's much more like that than, yeah. than I am also. Yeah. Like this yeah. feels fine, like very natural to her. Same. And My wife has taken to it like a, a to use the metaphor again, a fish to water mm-hmm. and she's totally in it. She understands her position and she's making her way up the pedigree ladder and uh, who's that and she knows them all. I, I'm okay not knowing anyone mm-hmm. and live, you know, kind of marching to my own, my own <laughs> drum. Uh, and uh, if I know I'm great, if I don't, I don't. Yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, now, you're not powerlifting now. Hurt my back I, two years ago. Uh, had a good good uh, surgery or two. Hurt my back actually squatting by myself in the gym, and so I gave that up. Yoga has become a big part of your life. Yes, but full disclosure, it's I don't know why I have to, like I have to qualify this, but it's more athletic yoga, more modern mm-hmm. yoga. Uh, I, I'll call it CrossFit meets yoga. So not the spiritual aspects of yoga. There's mm-hmm. no namaste. I don't mind that when I go to a studio that does that, but I'm more interested in the more uh, athletic versions, anatomically correct versions of yoga where they're using more modern postures, safer postures, Mm -hmm. and building strength over flexibility. Gotcha. What do you want to comp... Again, you're a goal setter. Is Is there a goal with this athletic type of yoga, this practice that you're involved in now? So I usually don't do anything I don't think I'm going to be good at. Yoga is the first thing in my adult life that I took on, maybe my whole life, that I took on knowing from the very beginning I will not be an overachiever in it because I'm not very flexible. In fact, as a power lifter, you don't work on flexibility. You work on having very stable a stable posture with single movements. You don't want a lot of movement in that movement or a lot of tolerance in that movement because it's single lifts, right? So yoga has been a great spiritual journey, not from the yoga practice of spirituality. I could care less about that. More about me, Stephen, getting to know Stephen and doing something that I'm not good at and having to confront myself at not being good at it and dealing with the ego, which I mean, obviously is the buzzword for men in their 40s for sure. Either it's being, either you have too much or too little. Mm-hmm. And you know, men are dealing with, I don't, they don't feel good enough or they're inadequate, or they have so much ego that someone's got to chop them down to size. Hopefully it's themselves. Um, so it's really a good check on my ego. I'm not good because it's hard. And um, there's, no, there's no goal. As an achiever, I'm, I love to be an achiever. I'm an A-type achiever. There's nothing to achieve. That's really hard. That's messed up, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have anything to say. You're about to do a D10. You got a goal to set and a, a number to hit and Mm-hmm. I don't have anything like that. So it's really, it's a good patience developer. Yeah, I can see that. And, and that's, I read somewhere also, you know, well, that's why they call it a practice. You know, yeah. you're, that you're never going to really perfect this yeah. overall. It is a practice and it's an evolving journey that you're on to continue to improve without ever really getting to, to the finish line. Yeah, it's, it's not a competition that you can win. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the, the development from my mindfulness practice, which is it was very weak, I will say for sure, if any, uh, but being able to be in a present state has helped me a lot. I love the fact that when you're doing yoga, not, again, flexibility yoga, but more strength-based yoga, I've loved the idea that I can get present very quickly. Those have been all great benefits. Um, don't get me wrong. Last year I ran the Houston Marathon. I'm still doing other physical physical feats that I can set my mind to. I want to do. I'm going to do Everest Base Camp in in uh, September 2019. Mm-hmm. Definitely doing that. Always looking for an adventure or something fun. But my daily practice right now is is definitely yoga. Strength strength based, not flexibility based yoga. With all these things that you're that you're doing and you set your mind to, um, you also. Have- you have quite a few employees also. I do. How many are you? I probably have um, 150 direct or indirect employees in my, all my companies. How are you with developing corporate culture, kind of um, imparting maybe either your philosophies onto those that work with you, for you, around you, or do you keep those things separate also? So I have a – culture is critically important to me. I, in fact, I used to like to set up with a cult and culture, and I really gather a cult around me of people who work with me. That's why I have people who work with me for 15 years, which is a great accomplishment, 10 years, 15 years. I still, my first two employees still work for me. 
Um, in the companies that I work in the day to day, culture is critically important. The companies that I'm an investor in slash uh, not in the day to day operations, but I'm actively involved, I don't work on the culture at all. That's not my job. But the com- that where I am the operator, culture is critically important to me. And I, the reason why is because I, I'm with these people more than I'm with my family during the week. Or if you add up total hours, it could be more in a week. So who they are and how, what, how we relate to each other is really important to me. And I want to work with people who have passion, who are good people, who want to improve themselves and the, the world. And so working on that, in, in my, my day-to-day job, a third of my job is working on culture. Mm-hmm. Does that include friendship also? No. I'm not friends. Uh, I am work friends, if that's a term, with the people who work with me. But out when we leave, I'm not their friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably not the right advice. And I know some other people who've done fantastic at maintaining friendships with their employees. That in my, it's like you know, drinking uh, drinking milk and tasting sour milk a few times. I've just said that milk's not for me. Now some people love milk. Mm-hmm. I just don't drink milk. It, yep. It's just not for me. I'm not friends with my team. We're a team. We have a job to do. When we leave the field, we're, we're not friends. We have a job to do when we're on the field, and we'll do it. But after that, we're not. And so that has helped me, um, I guess, also stay very objective in my decisions, where I've seen other people who get compromised because they have friendships that don't enable them to do their job as the leader because they are, they are concerned for more than what's going on on the field. Mm-hmm. Do you replace or do you have those friendships and relationships outside of work um, that allow you to have that closeness and then intimacy guys that, yeah, that you climb with or maybe some other? Yes, yeah. for sure. In fact, one of my lessons for sure in the last decade has been what I call the power of the peer group, which you can have an entire podcast on this. I am a huge, huge believer that men and women end up in sync with the people they spend the most time with. Jim Rohn said the five, tell me who your friends are, I'll tell you who you are. One of my good business mentors said, tell me who the five people you spend the most time with, tell me their net worth, and that'll be your net worth in the, la- the next five years on average. Um, I like to say that if you tell me the, the five people you spend the most time with, tell me their goals and commitments, and without, just write them down for me, I'll tell you your goals and commitments with the, without even knowing. Mm-hmm. And the, my peer group is really important to me, and I take it very serious, who I spend time with, who's influencing me, because I understand that you do end up in sync with, when you walk with your significant other, your children, you end up walking in sync with them. No, there's no different. You end up in financial sync with the people you're around and you physically, if, you know, you spend time with people who are more athletic, you will become more athletic. You spend time with people who don't watch their diet, you will put on weight. As a power lifter, I weigh 30 pounds more. Why? Because we ate, we ordered pizza during the workout, not after, during the workout. <laughs> we ate during the workout. Uh, yes, you will put on weight if you eat a large pizza while you're working out. I don't care how much you work out, you will. And so um, I believe in the peer group, power of the peer group, and I have a lot of analogies. One of my favorite quotes is a quote by uh, Tony Robbins. He said, um, the quality of your life is a direct reflection of the expectations of your peer group. If, and nothing's been truer in my, the last decade of making a difference personally and professionally. If you're, you're, you will, you will change your behavior to earn the love and respect of the people you're around. And if, and that includes, you know, upping your game, playing up to them. If you're around people who are really successful, you will do more than you thought you could do to earn the love and respect of those people. And I have done, I have really worked on in my, again, last decade, definitely last five years, of surrounding myself with people who I really will change myself to get their love and respect. Has that also caused, maybe it's not the right word, turnover in that group? So I get, I've, I've been judged by this, by people who will say to me, well, is that why you don't spend time with me? Because you don't think you can get ahead by being with me. And, uh, and that's, uh, that is partly true. So I can't hide from that. That is true. I, I, I don't remember what author said there are three-minute, 30-minute, three-hour people. And the reason why you don't have three hours with certain people who you need to spend three hours with them is because you've been spending three hours with three-minute people. I have friends who I love and adore very much. I love and adore, excuse me, love and adore them very much. And I've known them for 20 years. I also know that if I spend too much time with them, they will change my behavior. I will change my behavior to match theirs. That's not healthy for me. 
it's not healthy for them because they look up to me in, in certain respects and it's not healthy for my family. So I have to give those three minute people three minutes, 30 minutes at max. So I have enough time for the three hour people like my children and my wife and people who, are, who really are important for the things I've said as important to, said really are important to me, not this moment, but long term. So yeah, I've been given, I've, I've, I've gotten some uh, crap from friends who know this philosophy that I have. And um, the truth be told, no kidding, Greg, the two people who have given me the most crap for this three minute, 30 minute, three hour people, and have asked me or, that I'm only picking my friendships over opportunity. It's not opportunity, it's what I feel like is more important to me. Both of those people use the philosophy now. Both of them use a three minute, 30 minute, three hour philosophy, which is are they spending the right time with the right people? then the right amount of time with the right people. And that's not easy, but the discipline to do it has made a significant difference in the quality of my life. It's always harder to lead by example. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it is. You're, from the, you're at the front. I mean, it's, easy, it's easy to fall back into bad behaviors or just go with the herd or the crowd or whatever it is. And we're in a lot of crowds. I mean, yeah. We can be sucked into a lot of crowds. Yeah, and the doing a lot of different things and just going with the flow, and that can occupy it occupies a lot of time. Right? Yeah, it takes a lot of discipline. That doesn't mean I don't want to have fun with these guys, and I do have fun with them. We do mm -hmm. go out and we we will go to happy hour, we'll have a great time. I just know that can't come at the cost of what I really want for myself and my family uh, as most important. And I do know that I'll end up. I know that human beings end up in sync with the people they're around. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you have you need that because again. The, you can't burn the candle at both ends in that regard also. And I've been trying to tell some of the younger guys around here as we did that you can do whatever you want professionally too, like here. You, but you have to surround yourself with the kind of people that, again, you want to be around. If you love waking up early in the morning and go cycling, great, go do that. You will network and generate business opportunities and everything for you. But that's not going to happen if you're out Agreed. late the night before, yeah. okay? Try, being something that you're not trying to you just those two things don't work in sync again again together. Yeah. How about so don't think that you are missing an opportunity by not doing one thing in order to do another or trying to do both. You just have to pick who you are, where you want to be, who you want to be around, and what it is that you you want to do. Yeah, you said it perfectly. Here's a Stevenism for you: your actions much must match your ambitions. Mm -hmm. And you have to do the things that need to be done to match the ambitions that you set for yourself. And if you want to, like you said, be a morning person, have great networking, your action of being up late at night, you know, until 2 in the morning at a happy hour just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Being the person that leaves the happy hour at 9.30 or 10.30 because you know you have to be up, it takes some discipline. It's hard to do it and everyone else is having a good time. And you're thinking about all the possibilities that night. But um, You know, or don't go. Like, here's the other. It's hard to make a decision it maybe differs from a lot, what you think might be a larger group of people in a way. You make that decision, then ultimately over time you no longer get that invitation. Mm -hmm. And I've been talking to some people about some of this stuff too. You go, wait a minute, but is that, and you worry about that a little bit, go, but that's not the place that I want, I, I don't feel like I fit in even if I was there anyway, so I don't really want to be there. So now, should I be spending any time worrying about my feelings being hurt by not being invited to that? or? Do you relish the opportunity to wake up in the morning and find this other group of people where you fit in naturally and things are more organic? Again, it's more like, um, and you use this word uh, also because we're going to get this thing going, but tribe. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Just yeah. Find, finding your tribe. And when you've got them and you know you're going to see them, let's say, at 8 in the morning the next day, it does make it a lot easier mm -hmm. to make that decision than of what you're going to do the night before. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a matter of priority. I think, again, if you're hanging around with people who are expecting you to be there at 8 in the morning, it's they're going to bed or they're leaving or they're not going mm -hmm. to that happy hour. They're going home to their family or they're doing what they're working and then going home and going to bed. Um, any, the most important thing we talked about for sure on this, uh, show for sure is peers. Mm -hmm. That is so critical. Yep. It gets under downplayed so much. I, I couldn't agree more, especially again at this juncture of life, like more, more than ever. Yeah. We've come across a lot of people in 40 something years but at this juncture of life I think it's more important than ever to be around the right kind of people yeah I I think um, I'll say something about a little full circle about what we were talking about earlier about people following their passion or their purpose and those are different clearly 
and trying to be an entrepreneur or wanting to be an entrepreneur leaving their nine to five or leaving their corporate security. Because of social media and, and uh, you know, fear of missing out and seeing all these people live this glorious life of being an entrepreneur, you know, the one thing, you, you don't really know how well people are doing. And I'm, I have just recently been reminded of this, that people are great at faking it. And with social media, it's so easy to fake it. You just need one good photo mm-hmm. uh, a day or a week. Yep. And life looks amazing. You don't know from looking at social media how much money they're making or how good their life really is or how good their relationship really is. And being around people that you know are solid and sound not only will help you today, but it's going to help you. Warren Buffett has a great quote. He says, you're, you get when the you get to see who's been swimming naked when the tide goes out, and I'm paraphrasing that. Mm-hmm. When the mar- when we do go through a ne- the next economic cycle, which hopefully uh, will be in the next 24 to 48 months, when that happens, the people who you've seen pretending, you'll know who they are because they won't be pretending anymore because reality will set in. They'll be looking for a lifeboat, and being around building, you know, build, being around people and developing relationships now for, with the people who are solid who are going to be through that, it's important because you're not going to be able to do it then. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really good point. What's your daily routine? We've talked about meeting for workouts. You're more of a night. Yeah. Like, like, no, no, no what's, more. What's no, your daily routine? No 6 a.m., 5 a.m. kind of stuff. I wish I could tell you I'm that CEO who's up by 3 and does all that <laughs> jazz. I'm not that guy. Um, but uh, I'm, a, I'm, an up by, I'm an up by 7, and um, my first meeting is usually about 7.30. I'm sorry, about 8.30. And I, I'm at meetings all day long. I have a jam-packed calendar. I don't like any idle time. And I don't stop for lunch meetings unless I have an appointment to, and I, I'm normally going all day. And I try to get a workout in, if I'm lucky, sometime around 6 o'clock. If not, I'll push it. I'll work out as late as 9 o'clock at night because I have an hour before my gym closes. And so I'll try to get a workout in 6 if I can get to a class. If not, I, work at, I train myself, practice on my own at 9. And then usually I'll go back to work on those three or go to a meeting. Like I mentioned, three days a week, I either go to a meeting or go to a networking event. And the other days I just head home and try to get to bed as early as, hang out with my wife and my children before they go to bed and then try to get to bed as soon as possible. But I love being up late and I love working late. I love reading late. I'm not a kind of, the kind of guy that can be in bed by 9 o'clock. I mm-hmm. like being up 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I, I get my, a lot of ideas at that time. I'm settling in. My guilty pleasure is reality TV. So, you know, midnight, I'm usually watching reality TV reruns. Okay. Uh, and so, not for everybody, but if you want to know what's going on, 90 Day Fiance or for Love and Hip Hop or... No, man, uh, okay. Uh, uh, I, I, I do, I do uh, when I'm done reading or something, I'll, I'll, uh, I, will, I will decompress with some stuff like that. Thoughtless, tw- old Twilight Zone reruns. Um, weird, weird TV, and that's my routine. Um, intense, I'm going 90 miles an hour. Uh, and some people, their relativity 90 miles an hour is different. I'm going at 90 miles an hour. Usually it's people have to keep up with me in, in my day-to-day work. And I'm, I'm running and hoping they'll keep up. Do you want to pump the brakes at all at any point? Do you take time to travel? No, I do. do. Ta- I, I, definitely... I know we talked about the weekend and stuff like that too. But is there you know, a pump the brakes moment or, or something you're looking for where you say, okay, we're going to shit 90 miles an hour Red wine all the time is not no. it's not going to be it for me at this. I don't run, I don't redline it all the time, but when I do, I'm going. I'm going at ninety. I am redlining it when I'm going, and I don't do that all the time. I take you know extended breaks when it's time for vacation or anything like that. I'm, I really want. I I've learned that over over the last several years to really take a break. At some point, the exit or the slowing down is what I call the sweet sixteen, and it's basically I see myself working four days a week four hours a day. And I haven't quite figured that out yet, but I wouldn't mind in the next, not in the next 10 years, not through my forties for sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready for that. I don't want to do that. And I have Mm -hmm. a lot more, not a lot more gas in the tank. Definitely family vacations, definitely more time, downtime with my children as they're getting older. I don't want to be one of those parents who regret spending time with their kids. I'd rather give up a little bit less right now to spend a little bit more time with them. So family vacations are really important spending time with them. And that's decompression. On that peer group side that we talked about being so important, younger, older, or mix of both, depending upon older. what you're doing. Older. Older. Mm-hmm. I have an old soul, so being around much older older people is easy for me. 
and um, on average, most of them are older. Physically, no. There are guys like you and, and, and other people who are, who are our age, maybe a little bit younger on the athletic side. It's, it's always great to be around someone who's younger who can you know, kick your ass, mm-hmm. and you have to keep up with them. Uh, uh, that's always fun. But um, on the business side, for sure, older. Good stuff. All right. Stephen Kaufman, Midwife Mail Podcast. That is an hour, my friend. So we got to come back for part two mm-hmm. with some more great stuff. Thank you for being here today. I really, really appreciate Thanks all your time, me. all your insight. We will definitely do it again. Uh, Stephen, where can people find you if you want them to find you or, uh, or your businesses or anything? If you I'm, e- I'm, easy be, I'm easy to be found. I'm on uh, Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn at thestephenkaufman.com. TheStephenKaufman.com. There it is. If you like what you've heard on the show today, give us that five-star review. Subscribe to it. Tell all your friends and your family. If you didn't like it, don't say anything at all. All right? That's perfectly fine as well in this day and age. (laughs) There's a lot of other stuff out there you can tune into. But uh, all right. We're out of here. Talk to you guys next week. Peace. The Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit innsgroup.net. A Kia SUV is capable of taking you far, but when you use it locally to help your community, you go even further. Whether that's carrying cargo, bringing your team with you, ready, or navigating new terrain. Power up your capability with the right Kia SUV. Do more with the Kia Sportage, Kia Telluride, Kia Sorento, or Kia Seltos. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely.